My name is Wes. I'm one of the pastors here at Dunbar. Uh, excited to worship with you uh, as well today. And I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, uh, some way to access the Scriptures, turn with me to our passage today in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to do what we do each Sunday. We'll look at a passage from God's Word here. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have that passage and you found it, Genesis chapter 3, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat, when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman who you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pain in childbearing very severe. And with painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat plants of the fields. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of, the, of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That's a word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, I just ask for the illumination of your word as we come to it now. Open our eyes and hearts and minds to what it is you want to speak into each one of us. 
You promise us in your word that when you send it out, it doesn't return to you a void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. And God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I don't know, uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, I'm pretty much sure that there's not anyone in here today who doesn't have some experience, at least, of what it feels like to have to wait for something. Yeah, everyone? Don't think we have any royalty in here, anyone who would be like, I've never had to wait for anything in my life. Most of us, pretty much all of us, we, we get what that feels like. Just think about your own life, even for just the past maybe year even, your own life experience, what's something that you had to wait for in this past year? Or maybe what's something that you're waiting for right now? And then, follow-up question, how did that feel, having to wait for it? Or how does it feel right now? Uh, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but if you're at all like me, um, I don't at all enjoy the experience of waiting at all. Okay, It's just, I'm not, not a fan at all. Uh, we, we, we hate it for the most part, uh, no matter how character-forming or whatever it's supposed to be. I s still have memories, for instance, just vivid memories of these endless road trips that we would go on as a child where no matter how many hours we'd already been driving, uh, the, the response to my question, how much longer, was always seemed to be just a little bit further, almost there, almost there. It was just infuriating. Hated waiting to get there. And, whether, and regardless of whether it's anticipation for something amazing or desperation to be delivered from something awful, what makes waiting so difficult is that we're holding an expectation for something that we desperately want or, or need. And then the longer we have to wait for that expectation to be fulfilled, it's as though the, the weight of that expectation becomes heavier and heavier to carry book of Proverbs says it this way, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Yeah, I think that's a description we can all resonate with to at least some degree, whatever it is you happen to be holding an expectation for. But something I don't think we often consider uh, as we enter into now this hectic hustle and bustle of the Christmas season where so much of what we expect to see and to experience is realized is that waiting with expectation is very much tied to and a part of the Christmas story. A reality that's lost even to those of us with a biblical understanding of Christmas primarily because, well, we live on this side of Jesus coming. He's already coming, right? And yet, when you remember that this holiday season that we often just call it's Christmas is also referred to historically as the season of Advent, from the Latin adventus, which means arrival or coming. And I don't know, maybe this is just a self-evident point. It's so obvious we just skip past it without even thinking about the significance. But if Christmas is about the celebration of Jesus' arrival, then what that means is that up until that starry night in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, Jesus' coming wasn't something that anyone had experienced before. Nobody knew what that was like, and it was something that the entire world had been waiting in expectation for. And you ask the average person today about Jesus coming at Christmas, and you'll get a, a restrained response at best. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's right, he came at Christmas. I mean, and, and fair enough, as Paul says in Romans 8, uh, what, who, who hopes for what they already have? 
Fair enough. And yet, when you look at the different reactions of people to the Christmas story and the story of Jesus' arrival, from, from Mary to the shepherds to wise men, Herod, even the angels, you begin to get a picture of just the massive size and scope of the expectation that people held for Jesus' coming. An incredible weight of expectation that they were all carrying. Which is what this Advent teaching series that we're kicking off today, entitled Long Expected, is all about. Exploring both the amazing anticipation that people held for Jesus' coming, as well as the desperate desire for deliverance that people expected from Jesus' coming. All guided, uh, as I just said, by the words of that classic carol we just sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's going to just kind of help focus our exploration around some of the key expectations that were fulfilled in Jesus' coming. But more than just kind of a historical look back and like, oh, wasn't that interesting? We're very much going to be looking at how the coming of Jesus continues to fulfill longing expectations even right up until today. For although the coming of Jesus made the fulfillment of our heart's deepest longings available, there are many today, even within the church, who still don't yet experience or enjoy the fulfillment of their heart's deepest longings seeking instead to try to find fulfillment uh, somewhere else or in someone else other than the one person in whom our expectations can be fulfilled. But before we can get there, before we can get to the exploration of any of those longing expectations that Jesus came to fulfill, we need to look first at where the expectation of Jesus' coming originated from to begin with. Where did that start? Like, why why? was the world longing for Jesus' coming in particular? And how did anyone even know to expect his coming? Where did that start? That, that's what I want to explore together with you today with this foundational passage in Genesis 3 that we just read. And I say it's foundational because if you didn't know already, Genesis 3, what it describes for us, broadly speaking, is both what's wrong with the world as well as what Jesus would come to do about it. Or to put it another way, for those of you who've ever studied medicine before, studied psychology, uh, maybe you've been involved in therapy or counseling, you might be familiar with the language of a presenting problem and then root cause or core issue. The presenting problem, that's the thing you go to the doctor for, that's the thing you need help with that you go to see a counselor about. And then the root cause, the core issue being the thing that's actually causing this presenting problem. It's what's underneath and bringing all these problems about. Uh, it could be said that our presenting problem as a human race is everything that makes life hard, everything that makes life sad and frustrating, from sickness and death to fighting and famine, from addiction, chronic illness, to the mental health crisis just sweeping across our world, from an overconsumption of the world's resources to an undervaluing of human life. All these things are our presenting problem. And what Genesis 3 is going to describe is the root cause, the, the underlying cause of all that, or what would be the origin of the problem. But what Genesis 3 also describes for us, at least in seed form, is how the coming of Jesus one day, that advent or arrival that we celebrate every Christmas, how it will deal with not our presenting problems primarily, but with the root cause of them, what's, what's bringing about all those problems. So what we have in Genesis 3 is also 
the origin of the promise, which held together the, the problem and the promise is what creates longing expectation in all of our hearts for Jesus' coming. So that's what we're going to look at together from our passage today in this more kind of introductory message, the origin of the problem and the origin of the promise, just those two things, the origin of the problem and the promise. So if you close your Bible, uh, your Bible app, whatever it is, could you open it again with me to that passage? love you to follow along with me as in looking at both the origin of our deepest problem as well as the origin of God's promise to deal with it, we'll discover the origins of expectation. So let's look first of all at the origin of the problem. The origin of the problem. And I fully realize that I'm assuming a lot here. Uh, some prior knowledge of the Bible at least, having just kind of jumping into the story at chapter 3, uh, missing the entire creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 in which God makes everything that is, including us. And as he states after each act of creation, makes it all very good. Uh, if that's a part of the Bible that you genuinely just literally have no previous engagement with, um, I apologize. Sorry. Uh, I would definitely invite you to go back later today and read those first two chapters as it has equally foundational information, really fleshing out with a famous quote from Abraham Kuyper who said, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That's really what's described for us in Genesis 1 and 2, that the foundational knowledge of God is the creator of everything that is. But it's foundational as well because it also sets the stage for why everything that goes wrong in chapter 3 now is so devastating. For when God made the world and everything that is in it very good, that means that he wasn't just experimenting. He wasn't like just testing a hypothesis, let's see what happens if I push these buttons and put these things together. He made everything, and he made us perfectly, perfectly. That is, free from every single one of those presenting problems that I just listed. I mean, can you even imagine a world like that? A world where there's no sickness, no death, no mental health problems, no addiction, where we're both perfectly related with God and his creation as well as one another. I find it hard uh, because this is the air we breathe now. But, as we read there in verse 1, look with me. Into God's very good creation comes a crafty serpent. Also a creation of God, no questions, the text plainly says, and yet unquestionably under the influence of some other evil malevolent force, which the New Testament later clearly identifies as Satan himself. And he's clearly masterful in his manipulation of the woman as well as her husband, who apparently was with her the whole time, opting for this kind of soft, uh, suggestive side approach rather than a hard, easily recognizable frontal attack. As Derek Kidner puts in his commentary, the tempter begins with suggestion rather than argument. The incredulous tone, so God has actually said, is both disturbing and flattering, and it smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. Now, we're focusing our time today on the results of this couple's disobedience not to eat from the tree and, and not the temptation to disobey itself. And yet quickly, I was really struck anew this past week in my study at how Satan is able to twist their desire to be like God into something unattainable that God didn't already want them to have, in which they got to somehow outwit God in order to get. 
Isn't that crazy? It's, it's a common theme if you've read ancient mythology where the gods of ancient Rome and, e and Egypt, they would try to inhibit mortals from trying to gain their power and knowledge and these kinds of things. And yet, and if you read the Bible front to back, the message of the Bible is that, first of all, we're both made in the image and likeness of God, so we're already like Him, and that God's expressed desire is that we become more and more like Him. It's what He wants for us. So how interesting that, 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 that Satan would cause us to think that becoming like God was something He didn't want us to have, and we had to trick Him to get it. It's a common question people ask when, when you come to this passage in light of the prohibition not to eat from this one specific tree, kind of like, well, if eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was so bad, why would God put it in the garden to begin with? I thought everything there was good. The reality is, though, that eating from the tree was forbidden from them, not because that knowledge in and of itself was wrong, but because it was knowledge in their essentially adolescent state of maturity at the time that they were just simply not yet ready for. So it was a prohibition for a time, but not forever. And yet, something that we see very much pictured in a similar way today um, when it comes to toddlers, prepubescent children, we generally don't yet feel like they're ready to grasp issues of sex or sexual intimacy. It's knowledge that's good, but which we restrict from them because they're not yet ready to engage with it. But regardless of the why and the how of temptation, the man and the woman are deceived nonetheless that eat from the tree which has lovingly been forbidden from them. And as we see in verse 7, look with me here, the first result is that their eyes are indeed opened, as the snake had suggested, but the only thing they see now, which they hadn't seen before, is that they're naked. As Kidner again states it, the serpent's promise of eyes opened came true in its fashion, but it was a grotesque anticlimax to the dream of enlightenment. Not exactly what they thought they were going to get. And this right here actually is where I think you see their former adolescent maturity level from the man and the woman on full display. Because if you've read Genesis 1 and 2 before, you know that the way chapter 2 ends is with that beautiful picture. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. As although they were both created in adult form physically, they were apparently still had something of a childlike innocence, a simplicity about them until this awful moment. So you think about toddlers that you see, you know, they're running around the house, they'll tear off their diaper and just run around. And they're not, they're not covering themselves. They're just like, I want that toy over there. They'll just go to it. And there's nothing weird about it. And there's nothing weird about it for us. Somehow, before this moment, Adam and Eve, though physically adult, lived in that kind of freedom with one another. And yet so much more than innocence, what the beautiful paradox of naked and unashamed also pictured was both a depth of transparency and openness, a relational intimacy that they shared with one another. There was like, it's picturing physically that there was just nothing between them, nothing hidden or withheld from one another an openness and intimacy they also lose immediately upon eating the forbidden fruit. As what was once beautiful and carried no shame whatsoever now became deeply shameful, something that must be hidden from one another. A reality that painfully mirrors the very example I just gave a moment ago about children being introduced to the knowledge of sex. Where far too many in our world today, particularly women, have had their innocence and shamelessness ripped from them by the introduction of knowledge 
an experience that they were far too young to know yet. Painfully, that's very much what we're seeing pictured here. Clearly, we see that relational closeness is also lost, not only because they now hide themselves from one another, but in the way that they pass blame on one another. There's no protection anymore. They're throwing everybody under the bus. Verse 16, if you look at the second half of that, they plainly describes now they have an adversarial, domineering relationship between the man and the woman where they were once naked and unashamed with one another. No more. Pain in childbirth is now greatly increased for the woman, as is the painful amount of labor necessary in order for the same amount of food on which to live for the man. And in the end, if you look at verse 23 and 24 here, they are ultimately expelled from the Garden of Eden, this place of God's provision and blessing entirely, and the way of return made impassable. And yet, for all that was lost on that fateful day, even these were not the greatest loss for the man and the woman. As John Walton puts it so perfectly in his commentary, he said, The biggest problem of the fall was not concentrated in the change in human nature or the heart condition, but in the loss of access to the presence of God. If they ever thought about paradise lost, I would expect their thoughts to be filled not with the pleasant living conditions they enjoyed, provision of their every need, harmony among all the creatures, and so on. The overwhelming loss was not paradise, it was God. Throughout all the rest of the Old Testament, one never hears talk of regaining the comfort of Eden, but regaining access to God's presence. And I get it, okay? Um, I'm sure at this point in time, after a description like that, a lot of you are sitting here thinking, wow, Merry Christmas. What a, what a wonderful kickoff with a cheery, exciting series. Can't wait to hear the rest of this. Well, I hear you. I get it. Um, hopefully, what you can see as well is the way that these devastating losses provide now the context for longing expectation. And when you think about it, these realities continue to be the experience of all of us right up until today. This isn't like something that happened back then, right? These are not minor inconveniences, uh, frustrating detours around which we need to find an alternate route to fulfillment being described. This is estrangement from the very relationship for which we are created and in which the fullness of life is truly found. That's absolutely our experience still today. So this is the, the origin of our presenting problems, both for them as well as for us today, and the broken relationship which now every one of our hearts longs for reconciliation. Hear me, whether we know that that's what our hearts are longing for or not. It's actually my prayer this morning as I walked around uh, our neighborhood doing our prayer walk this morning, thinking about how many hearts are just longing for this relationship that they don't even know that's what's missing. They're trying to fill it with so many other things, and it's like, that, that's the thing your heart is longing for, actually. It was the great Canadian singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell who sang in her famous song, Woodstock, we are stardust, we are golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. In light of what we see here is the most devastating loss of this tragic event, it seems what we truly need most is not to get ourselves back to a place but to a person, not to a garden, but to God. And yet, as we see there in verse 24 of our passage, the way back to both 
was made impassable, guarded by this flaming sword that would flash back and forth, as well as cherubim, which just as try as hard as you can to get out of your mind the picture of those like chubby little babies, the winged ones with the curly hair flying around. Don't picture that. I think if you think of that, you'll be like, I could probably get past those guys. Throw some pebbles over here, they'd fly over, and I'd just deke in. Like, no, cherubim in the Bible, terrifying, winged creatures, powerful, very much not something that you could slip by. And secondly, it's interesting to note that cherubim are both molded in gold on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and also they are embroidered into that thick veil that covered the temple, the outside court from the Holy of Holies, into which only the priest could enter, and then once a year even. So it's like cherubim became something of a symbol or synonymous with what it meant to be restricted from God's presence. And yet with everything the man and his wife had lost at this point up to and including God, how hopeful, how hopeful was this promise of God found in our passage about what God himself would do to deal with their core issue, their core problem, which is what I want to look at together with you lastly as we talk about the origin of the promise. The origin of the promise. And I don't know, maybe you've read through these verses before, and even now as we're reading them, you don't see anything that even looks like a promise. You're like, uh, where, where are you seeing this? Fair enough. Uh, the promise actually shows up embedded within one of the curses God speaks following the man and the woman's disobedience, actually, uh, in the, specifically in the curse that God speaks over the snake in verses 14 and 15. Look with me there. First of all, in verse 14, God speaks a more general curse, that about the, the humbled posture that the snake now has to exist in, crawling on its belly, eating dust, this kind of thing. But then in verse 15, we read this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, in one sense, if you think about a snake striking someone's heel, uh, 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 someone's, uh, cr someone crushing a snake's head by stomping on it, those are, in a sense, really just the most likely kind of blows that either one of those parties would inflict on each other. That's kind of not weird description, and, and both of them have potentiality, at least to be fatal blows. And yet, if this snake in particular is more than simply just a beast of the field, but a tool or an emissary of Satan, and we notice that the pronouns for this offspring or seed of the woman that's said to crush the head of the serpent, they are all singular and therefore referring to a specific person, there's good evidence to suggest that what is promised in Genesis 3.15 is what theologians refer to as the proto-evangelion, or the first telling of the gospel. The announcement of what God will do one day in the person of Jesus, this future seed of the woman, to destroy the serpent and undo his malevolent work against his creation. That's what God's promising here within this curse. Which means, as I said earlier, not only does Genesis 3 describe the origin of our problem, it also contains the origin of God's promise. Hope, even in the midst of devastating loss, that this would not be the end of their story. Which for anyone who's ever lost anything dear to them, you understand what a rare and, and exceptional, gracious gift that is. Because for the most part, think about it, when we break something, when we fail someone, we mishandle something precious and it breaks, that's it, right? 
That's it. There's no promise that that action can be undone and reversed in any way. We just need to now learn to live without that thing or that person. That's, that's the reality that we live in. And yet here, in the promise of this coming offspring, the promise of this coming seed of the woman, they're given the promise of restoration and reconciliation to actually redo or, or undo that creates now hopeful expectation. And that promise is then picked up on, predicted, longed for now for the rest of the Old Testament until the last, at last that promise is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And man, well, there's so much that we could say about that promise, so much we could talk about the hope of what that promise offers to us, what continues to stand out, to me anyway, and really defy explanation is the context in which that promise is given. That's, this, this is crazy to me, because if you think about it, just think about your own life for a second. Imagine that you've had a fight with your spouse or a family member. And I say, think of family, because somehow when we have a fight with a friend, somehow like we're just on better behavior when we fight with them. So think about with your family, where somehow we just take the gloves off when we fight with them. When you've failed someone in your family, you've damaged relationship, you caused hurt or grief, for someone, listen, even for the most forgiving and gracious among us, it still takes time, right? There's some period of time before you feel anything like hope or restoration. Either that you can receive it or that you feel like offering, correct? There's a, there's a season that needs to take place before anything close to that even feels possible, right? Which is what you'd expect here. Primarily after such a catastrophic failure that's ruined everything, what you expect for God to do is be like, you know what, maybe just like sit the next couple rounds out. I just need to get my head around this and figure out and let's, let's see how you do over the next few millennia. And if things work out okay, I might think about fixing this. No, that, that's not what happens, right? Look again at verse 15. Before he even describes the consequences of their actions, God is promising to, prepare, to repair everything that they've broken to restore all that's been lost, to use the language of J.R.R. Tolkien, to promising to make everything sad come untrue. Before he even describes what the consequences of what they've done are. Demonstrating his genuine love and compassion for his creation, which the Apostle Paul later beautifully describes, Romans 5, when he writes about how God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still powerless, Christ died for us. When we weren't deserving, when the context prescribed judgment, instead it brings promise. In that moment, that's when Christ came and died for us, which is the means, if you didn't know, that is the means by which God's promise is fulfilled. Not that God would just kind of fix everything that was broken, you know, wave a wand or snap his fingers and somehow everything's fixed again. No, the death of Jesus Christ the death of this seed of the woman would be necessary in order for God's promise to be fulfilled. For when the shepherd's heel is struck by the serpent, it is indeed a deadly blow. And yet, what Satan failed to foresee is that in the death of the perfect Son of God in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, what C.S. Lewis refers to as the deeper magic, he brings about his own defeat. 
For when Jesus rises victorious over death, Satan's head is crushed beneath his feet. And the curse of sin is undone. As the author of Hebrews so powerfully summarizes the fulfillment of God's promise, Hebrews 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, this is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason, he had to be made like them fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Remember, the high priest, the one person who can go behind that curtain and make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus takes on that priestly role and goes behind the curtain for us. And then, in a sense, essentially, Jesus comes under the sword of God's judgment himself in order to make the way back to God open once again as the tearing of the temple curtain at his death plainly reveals. These are altogether the origins of expectation. Both anticipation for this long-expected Jesus as well as the desperation for the deliverance that his coming would bring. But do you see now why we need both? We need the problem and the promise are necessary in order to create that longing expectation. Right? Without the promise, the problem leaves us all both outside the garden and outside of relationship with the one person from who we are all designed to be in relationship with. It's what Paul describes in Romans 8 as us along with all creation, groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And isn't that all our experience so often? It sure feels like that. And yet as we saw, the problem the exclusion, the frustration, the groaning became the very context in which the promise was given and which was ultimately fulfilled by the coming of Jesus. So we're going to spend now the rest number of weeks leading up to Christmas exploring some of the many longing expectations that Jesus' coming fulfilled and continues to fulfill for us. But hopefully what you see already is how the cry of every human heart from the moment that paradise was lost was and continues to be. Come, O long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Amen.